0: <laughs> and that's exactly what they've done with the Night's nice Watch, isn't it? Like, this job is extremely important in the development and, and security of our nation, so let's give it to the people that we can't trust to buy a loaf of
1: bread without killing someone. Well, the other thing is, they released the hound. Uh, <laughs> huh. Released the hound. <laughs> um, they, uh, they, re- they released the hound, didn't they? And um... <laughs> I can't hear you, seriously now. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> what a uh, what a lot of material. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Shark Oil's coverage of *A Storm of Swords* by George R. R. Martin. This part is called "And Now His Watch Is Ended." I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And it's nearly our time to end our watch over the first half of Stone of Swords, because this is the sort of back end of the first part of the of the book. Already? Uh, yeah. Uh, what we do uh, every week, as most of you already know now, is uh, we take a section of the book um, and then, you know, just discuss it. So we broke, we've broken this this book down into a number of sections. This is part five. We're going from... Oh God, here we go. Hang on. This is my usual... <laughs> try and work out where we're going from it was a I chapter like about tyrion. This one out this time yeah it start we're starting today with a, i think it's page 426 chapter about tyrion nothing remained beyond the king's gate and reading to the end of the book which is if you're you know, reading as far as page in in the in the two book version page 569 a chapter about john which begins the ground was littered with pine needles that's the last sounds chapter like nice... today. Yes, good. Yeah, they're both quite nice, aren't they? But nothing left beyond the king's gate sounds a bit grim. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that it's just going to be another excuse for George Martin to indulge himself with more kind of airy pastorals, nice kind of calm
1: yeah. storytelling. Yeah, you know. yeah. There was nothing beyond the king's gate but a beautiful vista which he looked out <laughs> upon and spoke wonderful words to each other, professing their undying love forever and ever. I think that's that, basically that, how it went.
0: I, I agree with you. I, you know, I think George <laughs> Martin is going to go down in history as one of one of uh, the English language's great
1: romantic writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's let's jolt back to reality and uh, the, <laughs> the the at some at times uh, ongoing misery of Game of Thrones, but is, there's good bits as well. Um, oh, absolutely. Okay, so so Tyrion, the first chapter Tyrion. we're read today about Tyrion. He's out having a look beyond the walls of king's landing because they're trying to rebuild the city now and there are already new people jember before the battle at king's landing he he burned all the sort of shacks that have been put up outside the walls which people had sort of been living in slums there he burned it all to the ground and already people have started to move back in again because obviously they've nowhere else to go um, yeah, he just kind of looks on at them and thinks, "Oh, that's annoying." They've already come back, and there's a bit of a lack of empathy there, isn't it, between the rulers and the and the ruled, if you like.
0: Yeah, well, particularly given that the rulers in question, the Lannisters, like I've, it's very clear that there's no part of their upbringing which has to do with thinking about other people.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: So, so even Tyrion, who's quite a sympathetic character, is still sort of like, "Oh, these fucking poor people. They come back, they with roofs over their heads and." lives and what shits.
1: <laughs> yeah, the funny thing, th- there is one bit where I think there are those three massive trebuchets which it, they use to defend the city and they're still there and there are oh, kids yeah. climbing all over them and he thinks, oh, we should post some guards to stop them and then the kids start throwing shit at him and he says, oh, just just leave it. <laughs> let them climb just over it. <laughs> let them climb, let them fall, see if I care. Yeah. Um, so the big job is they're, they're trying to repair the harbour because it's... Um, it's obviously, it's a really important port uh, in Westeros King's Landing. And obviously mm. it's just littered with broken ships at the moment. Um, he's having to do a lot of this work for Sir Kevin Lannister, do you know, uh, his uncle, because mm. he's heard the news about, do you remember those two lads who were killed up in Riverrun, the two Lannister boys?
0: Oh, the ones that Carstock died for?
1: Yeah, one of, them was, uh, one of them was Sir Kevin's son, so he's devastated over that. Yeah, and, yeah. So, yeah, there's a, just a bit of a plot moving on there. Uh, he's, Tyrion's been humiliated and it, people are laughing at him in the street openly because he hasn't slept with Sansa yet. So he's married oh, this and, girl and hasn't sort of consummated it. And, and the um, word's out. Yeah, the word's out. How, so
0: How the hell does that happen
1: in sort of courts and this sort of thing? How, how does anybody find that out? Well, this is a, he. He thinks there are two ways this has happened. He says, "A, it's either Sansa's been daft enough to tell one of her handmaidens who, and mm. they're all sort of in the pay of Cersei, or um, there's there's this there's, there are these constant nods towards the fact that Varys seems to have access to this connection of passages around the castle, and it's almost like." Walls, uh, passages behind walls, so you can spy on people's rooms and see what they're getting up to. And that's the way that Varys knows so much. So it's possible that someone's been watching them in the bedroom, which is creepy enough if you just think about it for a minute.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's a horrible image, isn't it? Varys hiding behind some sort of, like,
1: a portrait on the walls with the eyes cut out, Uh. looking through it. (laughs) uh, Horrible. Yeah. Um, So... He goes to he, he he sort of thinks about Shay as well, um, who and he was a bit disappointed that when he told Shay that he was marrying Sansa, he expected her to be really angry and upset mm. um, because obviously they're supposed to be these two people who are in love, and she yeah. just really didn't really care. She said, "Oh well, you know, as long as I'm still your whore, I'm not bothered. I'm still getting what I want from it, effectively."
0: Yeah, um, and I can understand why Tyrion coming at it from a very kind of privileged you know wanting love kind of a place hmm. would be would be hurt by that but if you think about it l- that sort of love romantic connection thing in a sense is quite a luxury particularly in a world like this hmm. so shay's like well what's the best i could possibly have expected you know yeah. I, you know i i'm still sleeping with you also is she as a whore is she still sleeping with other people because I, I, you could
1: I think they had had an agreement when they, you know, right back before when he first met her in that camp, the Mm. agreement was that she wasn't to sleep with anybody else, Um, and she was just going to be
0: his. Okay, all right, fair enough. So I was going to say, actually, like, you can definitely see, you can definitely see that then, can't you? Mm. Like, you know, she's like, well, I'm a prostitute, and I sleep with other people, so go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a strange arrangement they've got, isn't it? Because yeah. you're never sure whether um, they're both after the same thing. And I, I kind of get the impression they're not. Um, but, you know. I don't know about you. The, I mean, obviously, Tyrion's thing for prostitutes,
0: been falling in love with prostitutes, is a major part of his character and his backstory and the rest of it. Hmm. But um, do you buy it? I mean, because I think it's he's such a canny operator in all other areas of life, and he's so... Like immune to insults and to and to kind of emotional pain. Otherwise, he's had to be because he just gets mocked everywhere he goes. Yeah, and then he's got this sort of Achilles heel. Does it he, does it ring true to you?
1: Uh yeah, I think it. I think it does. As far as you think, he's, he finally they're just the only people who actually um are see him for anything other than something quite embarrassing and a bit disgusting. And maybe he, maybe he just chooses to believe um, that it's real, or he, I suppose it's the only time he even gets the chance to um, to believe that someone is genuinely attracted to him. Um, so I maybe he just doesn't know how to. He, he can't. He can't tell the difference between genuine and not genuine, just simply because he, he, you know, he doesn't have anything to compare it to. So he just assumes this is this is the way. It does. You're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, there is some problem with that because he's so shrewd with everything else but then i suppose people can be very shrewd about most things and then have a, a blind spot in certain areas yeah that's true um and I, you know i don't he doesn't feel like a
0: massive bum note in his character but it is a mm. bit like you know he's sort of like discovering that like the rock I, in his spare time does sort of like has a real passion for flower arranging it's mm. like you know, you would write that into a character because it's nice to have a bit of contrast, but is that would that really happen in life? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There's this, this next passage where uh, Tyrion goes to visit this guy called Simon Silvertong, who's a, a singer who's been uh, spending a lot of time with Shay, And I think she's told him some... I think th- he basically knows about Tyrion and Shay and how mm. their relationship. So Tyrion's offer is to get him to leave for like 10 years and go and wander around the free sh- cities outside of Westeros. And yeah. he's saying, you know, take this massive bag of go- gold and off you go. And yeah. this guy, uh, Simon Silversong, he, he, he has threatened him before Tyrion and he didn't do anything about it. And I think this guy's become a bit bolder now and he's asking yeah. for more. And he basically wants Tyrion to get him a place at the feast um, at Joffrey's yeah. wedding so he can sing there to expose himself to all these people. And he's yeah. got this song that he's written about Tyrion, um, which he's threatening to to play to people if he if he doesn't basically get the secret mm. out. There's a couple yeah, of lines yeah. there. There's a a chain and keeper, nothing compared to a woman's kiss. And um, for hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. And there's all these sort of very oblique yeah. references to Tyrion and yeah. this uh, this whore that he has. Um, yeah. So it's quite funny. This guy's a classic example of a. A sort of small-time guy overplaying his hand here, isn't it? Because he, <laughs> he has the chance to get all this money and be pretty much made up as a very wealthy singer for the rest of his life. But he, yeah. he rejects that and says, no, I want this place singing at the uh, in front of the king. And in the end, yeah. Tyrion sort of leaves and tells Bronn to just off him with <laughs> the first <laughs> opportunity so. yeah he's a bit mafia this isn't
0: it yeah. somebody going in belief his dignity to have, it, have a, a you know make him an offer that he can't refuse
1: yeah and it's, he's not the most um, sort of um, easiest to like characters. this Simon Silvertongue, is he because he his plan no, basically is, is, is to, to to off one of the other singers who, um, who's already got a place sort of on mm-hmm. his own merit at Joffrey's yeah. wedding. So it creates a, a free place for this guy to move into. So, yeah, he, he seems just a lot of low cunning, but a lot of stupidity as well amongst that, that singer. And he kind of does, creates his own downfall, doesn't he? He does. And... He- I don't know,
0: this is quite a, a dark scene, but there is something quite funny about it. Because you know what Tyrion Lannister is like, and how good he is at negotiating things. And then you've yeah. got this guy sitting there across a table, holding a lute, casually. Strumming it, and kind of going, well, I don't know, what's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> you fucking idiot. Yeah. The
1: continued right to draw breath is what's in it for you, but never mind. <laughs> Yeah, because this is um, this whole offer of Tyrion's is just him out of kindness, really, isn't it? Because he's a bit squeamish about offing people left, right and centre. Because mm-hmm. the easiest thing to do is to kill this guy. But um, uh-huh. he tries to give him a way out. He doesn't take it. So he goes, right, well, that's you done for them. Um, to- that counts as unwise mercy in Westeros, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Even giving him the first chance.
1: Yeah. Um, the next person Tyrion goes to meet on his little travels is, is Tywin, who summons him to his... Uh, is solar, and says to him that he's got a uh, uh, he's got these two Valyrian steel swords. Which uh, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Tywin's been after these swords for years, and he can't get a yeah. hold of one. These special swords. He's got two of them, uh, which have been newly created, <laughs> just off of Amazon. <laughs> yeah, one for Joffrey and one for Jamie and they look these really impressive blades. Um. Yeah. Do you yeah. know where this, these these have come from? I think we we may have spoken about it before. I, 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 if we have, I can't remember where have they come from. It's um, it's Ned's old sword. Do you know, ice, which um, oh, he used to have, and it's been melted down. He's melted it down and turned it into two oh, swords. You yeah. bastard! Yeah. You bastard! <laughs> it's another sort of kicking the balls for the Starks, isn't it? That's the yeah. sort of the ancestral sword has now been melted, melted down, down and gone and over and to, given the to the Lannisters. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you can. Uh, do you know what? I didn't realize that while I was reading this, but you could almost hear in uh, Tywin Lannister's voice just that uh, he's suppressing a mad laugh. Like a kind of. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm just so diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we get a bit of a chance to to see just how how bad things are for Tyrion insofar as looking after the Crown's finances. Looks like the Mm. Crown's borrowed loads and loads and loads of money and has no way of paying it back. And it's kind of one of those sort of pass the parcel, but the opposite version where if you're left holding it when the music stops, it's just all terrible and horror for you. Because Mm -hmm. it's just a a ticking time bomb, this, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. Littlefinger's done very well. But he's kind of done very well by just pushing the problems down the line and just borrowing on borrowing to create money, and I mean there are parallels with modern day, I suppose. But um, there, yeah, a
0: great howling evident parallels. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's all right because um, so in this in this analogy, is the lordship of Harrenhal like a government bailout? Sort of like, well, he's borrowed too much and he's kicked it down the road, but let's give him a lot of money anyway, eh? I mean, it's Peter Baelish after all, and he's got the dirt on the lot of us, so um, yeah, probably better do that.
1: Yeah, it feels like he's just got out at just the right time, hasn't he, Baelish?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, he's really infuriating. A character as slimy as Peter Baelish being the one who's got the charmed life, always sidestepping the obstacles and kind of yeah. winning through no matter what. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really hope he gets to the Eerie and uh, Liza Liza Arryn just kicks him square in the balls. <laughs> out the moon. <laughs> of course, dog. I'm not going <laughs> to fucking marry you. What are you, mental? <laughs>
1: get in one of those freaky sky cells and just rot there for Mm. the rest of your life oh Mm. lord terrifying isn't it yeah the um, so the other thing here is this news of oh um, Cersei's the the offer of marrying Cersei to Sir Willis has been turned down Um, so (laughs) I'm not
0: sleeping with her she shags her brother
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, apparently it's because the Queen of Thorns has said um, that he uh, that she's too old Cersei's too old, and ah. she, she, she's not going to have very many years of childbearing left. So, so we'll let yeah. marry someone else, um, yeah. which is obviously a real slap in the face to, te- uh, to Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this news that's come down from the from the wall from Castle Black about the attack at the Fist of the First Men, mm. saying saying we need support. Um, there's been this big attack, and once again, Tywin's response. as was last time when the the threat was the wildlings, and they? Um, they basically said, oh, well, just leave the wall to it, and if the Wildlings come over, it's just another problem for Rob, so much the better. This time, timing says, oh, well, we can't send any soldiers, but um, just make it clear that uh, unless they select Janos Slint as the new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, um, they're not going to get any more soldiers from us. Uh, so you see, he he basically hears this story of a massive defeat north of the Wall, and the one thing he takes out of it is the Lord Commander's dead. So he thinks opportunity to place my own creature there as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch is such a political animal, isn't he, Tywin? He, he just is. sees opportunities all over. But he's such an idiot as well because Janos Slyn
0: is worthless. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like it's not like uh, oh, yeah he's just I mean from any perspective Janos Slim is not a good person to have in that role because hmm. he's weak and he's cowardly and he's cruel and he won't maintain it properly and all the rest of it but no 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 he's our man so he gets the job
1: yeah it's funny isn't it because some of his um some of Tywin's closest advisors are very able men like Sir Kevin and so yeah. that's Sir Adam Maraband and uh a few of the other and then he's got these attack dogs hasn't he like Gregor Clegane, who's who's very mm. useful in a certain way and very loyal, but mm. then there's another tier of people like uh, the uh, Grand Master and mm. um, Janos Slint, where it's sort of if he can if he's not got an able person, his next best thing is at least have someone who's in completely loyal. And the two th- the one thing you can say about both Pysele and Slint are they sort of depend completely on the Lannisters. So Mm. he just thinks, you know, if you can't have someone who's loyal and particularly able, then just make sure they're loyal.
0: (laughs) Um, You can't have good, at least have
1: purchased. Yeah. And by loyal, I just mean that um, they don't have any other option to turn away because someone like Slint would sell uh, Siren down the river at the first opportunity, but you can't see a a position where anybody else would give him the same level of support. So by definition, it's going to stick with the Lannisters. Yeah. yeah. So we move north to north of the wall. Let's
0: where Janos Slint is decidedly not the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch.
1: No, no, because the old Thank bear's God. still kicking. Uh, well, yes, at the moment he is. Um, Get in there, Gior! <laughs> yeah. So this is a, this is a, they've got to Crasters now. Um, this the this sort of depleted remnants of this, you know, the survivors of the Battle of the Fist of the First Men. Mm. Rich uh, Craster's Keep. Sam's got himself a new nickname because he's killed a, a White Walker. He's now called Slayer, which is <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of an ironic name, isn't it? From most of the most of the uh, Night's Watch, they call him it to kind of make fun of him because they don't really believe he did it. Yeah, um, although the the Lord Commander seems to believe him. Yeah, mm. um, because they've they've got all. Uh, do you remember, they found this massive cache of uh, dragon glass. Mm. it turns out they didn't keep most of it most of it was left on the top of the fists of the first men but um they, they've got a few arrowheads and a couple of spearheads and a few yeah. daggers and they've divided them out among the sort of the i think the arrows have gone to the best bowmen and yeah. they're just kind of hoping that they they'll have enough to to fight off the white walkers if they turn up yeah um, which yeah. is a bit grim yeah um There's real... Throughout this chapter, and it comes to a head at the end of it, there are all these rumblings of discontent and mutiny, aren't there? Yeah. Um, These men now are cold, hungry, terrified, because they think at any moment they could get attacked by undead creatures. Yeah. And they also think that this miserable old bastard who who they're having to live with is keeping all the best food away from them and making them eat watery broth and... Well, yeah. he won't look after their uh, their men properly and the wounded are dying. And yeah. it just feels really um, like on a knife edge all the way through, doesn't it? And Crass is very confident. He says that they won't be attacked here because he's a godly man. And I think this feeds into your theory about the old gods and the White Walkers and there's some sort of connection there. Or maybe they are the old gods because he says here, I'm a godly man and I'm right with the gods yeah.
0: And yeah, that's why I'm not
1: being attacked. It's a frightening idea, though, isn't it? The idea that the old gods,
0: who were sort of above all else quite static, yeah. uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, have suddenly become these walking around kind of evil beasts, or have turned out to be these kind of. Um, so I, I kind of don't want the old gods to be these things, but I think they probably are.
1: <laughs> What, a, what sacrifice as well to actually get on terms with the old gods yeah, just taking your newborn sons out into the yeah. woods to leave to die or to be taken by them I mean that's, oh. what a price oh. to pay
0: and there's a really creepy bit at the, end of this, at the end of this chapter as well isn't it it's like the last line of this chapter implies that those sons don't necessarily die and stay dead oh really, what was the line? Oh, the last line of it is the the sons they come back or something like that. Like the very last line of this, this chunk, oh, this chapter.
1: I completely um, missed it. Let me find it. Hang on. It's, it says that he says the sons come back. Um one Shit. of well Right yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: right at the end of it. Um uh Sam's being urged to run away by um by various of Craster's wives and um Oh fuck and yeah. One of the reasons they give is that the sons come back. And it's like, it's so creepy. Because imagine, I mean, for nothing else, imagine these women who've been having these babies and Crash has been giving them up to the cold gods. Yeah. And then you see these sons of yours grow up as undead minions of evil beings. Yeah. Occasionally wandering through your house and stealing a chicken or two. and. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, this is the line that it's one of the older women of Craster's daughters who says The boys' brothers, Craster's sons, the white cold's rising, I can feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon, the sons. Yeah, I don't know how I missed that, but you're damn right. That is hmm. that is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The zombies will come. Yeah. Um the, oh, there's, there's this. Just before, let's just rewind slightly, and um, just yeah, before yeah. it all goes south here, there's a bit of archery practice outside, and this old guy called Ulmer, who's one of the best archers, and he's like, he's, he, I just quite like this coach. He's like a, a gnarled old ranger, a bit mm. like Diwin with the wooden teeth, and mm. um, and he sort of he's he's doing archery practice with these younger guys, and he's absolutely owning them um, with, his, <laughs> with his skills and uh, he's got all these stories about fighting with the Kingswood Brotherhood and all this back in the day and this is another uh, old story which you keep getting links back to I think Jamie uh, Lannister mentions it uh, Mm. uh, ages ago because there's this guy called the Smiling Knight who led these bandits in the the Kingswood and Mm. it was about one of these stories about how great the old um, Kingsguard used to be there was this big battle and I think there's the, the sword of the morning slew the smiling night and all this stuff. And um mm. it's funny because this is from the opposite side and he's talking about all these old friends he used to have in a king, in this this group of bandits and how they were all really brave yeah. and skilled yeah. and stuff. And I just love those sort of two sides to every great battle story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And George Martin does it better than almost anyone
0: else doesn't it making every side somehow relatable.
1: Yeah. Uh, There's a nice little passage with Gren uh, talking about bravery. Uh, Sam's saying how cowardly he is and how he he thinks it's stupid that everyone calls him Slayer and it's obviously a joke. And Gren says that, you know, he's just pretending to be brave and he's he's scared most of the time and he he wonders Mm. if that's what everyone does. And it probably is. And it's the. I just quite liked it because it's easy to read these books and assume, oh, yeah, look at all these people just being brave and. Doing these superhuman feats, but I suppose all these characters would just 90% of the time, when they're doing sort of brave things, they're just fucking terrified. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: and I, and I think that's very true to life, isn't it? I think hmm. I, don't, I don't know many people who do extraordinary things and who afterwards go, oh, It wasn't a big deal, like I just, you know, just sort of got on with it. It's not really very frightening. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that's not all false modesty. You know, the fact that people don't talk that way is the fact that it really is frightening and people do extraordinary things anyway. And haven't you just been crying out for somebody to have this talk with Sam? Mm. Man, if ever there was a guy who needed a sort of big brother figure to be like, I get that you're scared, but it's okay to be scared. Mm. You know, that's not a failure of... of who you are
2: because
0: that's all he's ever got from his dad isn't it you read books you sing songs go fuck yourself (laughs) whereas whereas here gren is like you know it's that i think it's a really important thing actually i think everybody needs it at some point it's for somebody who's like vaguely contemporary with them to be like actually you know you're not doing as badly as you think you are
1: yeah yeah He's, he's becoming a really important character for sam isn't he gren
0: he is, and I, I, it's another great example of those minor characters that just sort of come out and blossom a bit in the mm. book, in a way they never do in the TV series.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, there's before that. There is obviously there's this big mutiny before that happens. Um, this guy called Bannon finally dies. One of the rangers who's been dying slowly in the um, of his wounds, and there's this funeral. And I, I, I kind of got the impression here that sort of, especially on a second read, this was. A real chance of um for the Lord Commander to restore some um, morale and to give him a really good send off and make mm-hmm. a really stirring speech about how great this guy was because earlier in the chapter we hear that this guy was in charge of the medical supplies, and he i think oh, I think he might have been or oh, something to do with that oh, i 'm sure there's bits and pieces they could have said about him anyway mm-hmm. and um, and the sort of the eulogy when this guy is being burned at his funeral, it's kind of like he came from... The, and the log commander can't even remember where he came from. He's got to get, like, a, a prompt about that. Yeah. And yeah. then he just basically does a very generic, you know, he, he he never shirked his duty. He always did what he was asked of him, and now his watch has mm. ended. And yeah. you just think, if it was something... He kind of phoned him, and if it was something mm. a bit more, um, I don't know, stirring that he could say, it might have brought, brought a few of the people on the fence around a bit more for when it all went south in the end. but
0: for, Oh, that's true. I, I hadn't thought of that, because I, I thought this was just another expression of the Night's nice Watch and how they're only interested in one thing, which is doing their duty and then mm. dying. So yeah. I thought this is like the like the only speech he could possibly make is to remind everybody of their
1: vows, and that's what this yeah. is about. But it, you're right, he doesn't be. do it in a terribly
0: uplifting way. You know?
1: No. Well, that's what that's does, his does character it. as well, isn't it? He's yeah, very yeah. sort of dour and... Uh, He's not much for a joke. If it is, it's very. It's like a sarcastic one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's
0: true. He um he uh he doesn't certainly doesn't give it the the full Independence Day. Bill Pullman Independence Day. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Which, exactly. which would sound, Matt, something like?
1: <laughs> no, I'm not doing it again. Oh it? <laughs> man! How many times have I done? You've come to the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, is It's not. Um, this isn't a. Uh, Uh, we will survive kind of (laughs)
0: that would be great though it's like we will without question go quietly into the night (laughs) it is unavoidable that we will give up without a fight (laughs) today we celebrate death
1: (laughs) yeah um, they finally decide to move on from Craster's, and Craster says, "Oh, you know, it becomes quite cheery." Then and says, "I'll throw you a feast to see you off as, as well as I can." Mm. And that again, it was a moment I thought, "Oh, it's, the danger's past It looks like you know yeah. we've come close to something terrible happening, but we're going to at least get away from this place." Because so, I felt through all this, the longer they stayed there, the worse things were going to get, and the more, um, the more dangerous it would, it, it was becoming. So. When they're about to leave, I was thinking, that's great news. Mm. And then there's this, basically the, the feast isn't good enough um, and all the uh, quite a few of the members of the Watch start complaining and it turns into this standoff between the Lord Commander mm. and one of the men who are complaining. And it looks like the Lord Commander's won because the guy's about to sit down, but then mm. Craster sort of steps in. And um, and it just <laughs> all and, and then suddenly people are getting stabbed left, right, and centre, and the old bear's killed along with Craster, and it just turns into this massive fight between the loyalists and the and the uh, the non-loyalists, I suppose. And the old bear's dead. Yeah,
0: he's gone, man. We're losing badass grandpas left, right, and centre.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's a real, that, that was a real shock, wasn't it? That he um, yeah. he couldn't hold on to this group. And you, the thing is, it's, per, it's both a shock and not, because on the other hand, you can see this building all the way through the chapter, and the fact that they're desperate and frightened men and they're being treated badly by a guy who's got no power over them. You know, Craster is, other than the fact that, you know, the Night's Watcher decided because it's his place, they're not gonna, they're not going to do anything to him. Yeah. In terms of, he's got no guards. He's got no strength. It's just him yeah. shouting at people, and it's there's only so far you can probe someone like that. I think, and then suddenly it all it all goes to hell. Yeah,
0: yeah, particularly when the Nights Watch have all been selected for being, you know, unpalatable in the society they grew up yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Actually, I'd never thought of this before, but the whole Nights Watch project is a little bit like. Um, the people who kind of routinely write into, to like the sun, I'm told, <laughs> um, and kind of suggest that all the people who've been locked up for horrible crimes should go and serve in the army. And it's yeah. like, it, is that what you want? Like a crowd yeah. full of head heavily a crowd full of heavily armed paedophiles is that what you're looking to do you know what i mean and that's exactly what they've done with the night's watch isn't it like this job is extremely important in the development and and security of our nation so let's give it to the people that we can't trust to buy a loaf of bread without killing someone
1: yeah i remember actually yeah there was a big thing in england for a while wasn't there Um, in some newspaper to uh to send Convicts to the army, and I remember someone's response was like, "The last thing we need in the war in Afghanistan. It's not the one thing. I don't know what's going to solve it, but one thing that isn't is a paedophile in a tank. (laughs) 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 That's not the answer. (laughs) I'll
0: tell you that here and now, and for free.
1: (laughs) It's never the answer. A paedophile in a tank is never the answer. It's never, never the the
0: solution to your problem.
1: Um, there are two other things I want to say about this chapter one is um, the old bear's death he has a little sort of dying speech he does, he's classic isn't it it's classic, straight from yeah.
0: the Vietnam War movie
1: <laughs> go yeah. tell my son but, it, but yeah it's tell my son and he says tell my son Jorah that I forgive him and he wants him to join the Night's Watch and I don't, don't know like is, he going, is this setting something up for in the future do you think it seems a, a long shot because I don't see how Sam's going to end up meeting Jorah but I suppose it's not in, it's not impossible.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, it's a bit of a long shot. It has to be said. Um, I, if only because Ser Jorah thinks he's onto a good thing with Daenerys, and he's very unlikely to take vows of chastity anytime soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it yeah. could come off. I mean, uh, for all of his faults, Ser Jorah is at least a man of substance and force, and that's exactly yeah. what you know. He he is his father's son, yeah. and that's what the Nights Watch needs. But. Um, I I I would say it's unlikely
1: yeah so the chapter ends with Sam and Gilly, this girl who's just had a baby boy, uh, and the baby obviously running off and Mm. making for the wall, so with a bit of luck, this isn't the last of Sam but I mean it seems extremely dangerous but um, we'll see it is extremely dangerous, but I
0: mean you back Sam don't you, really? I mean in a fight Slayer, Slayer. of course you back him yeah (laughs) (laughs) the
1: man's called Slayer
0: Yeah, ironically though, that's just because he's really into heavy metal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) somebody had to make that gag, I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: it was it was. It was needed to be done.
0: It's sitting there. It's like the Marillion gag, isn't it? Actually, how many sort of seventies, eighties kind of alt heavy metal acts (laughs) do you think are gonna get a shout out in the naming in in this whole series? The next one, there. W- watch now, there's going to be a fella called Biohazard. You heard it here
1: <laughs> first, eh? Hey? Yeah, Sir Biohazard. Sir Biohazard.
0: <laughs> Sir Biohazard the clean.
1: <laughs> Let's move on to the next chapter, Yeah. I'll tell you what, the, the big set pieces just keep coming in this, um, this section, don't they? I know. Because we just had a big one with the muni- mutiny. And now we've got um, fight to the death with flaming swords in front of a fire pit, uh, including involving the hound, it's absolutely awesome. It is awesome. Um, so Ayers arrived at the the hideout of the Brotherhood without Banners, and she meets Thoros of Mere and Beric Dundarium uh, Thoros is this red priest who used to he used to be this sort of affable, heavy drinking priest who didn't really take his vows very seriously, and the sort of the war has turned him into this very gaunt, haggard guy who's a complete fundamentalist now. Mm. Um, it's interesting because Thoros and Beric are obviously, and this whole this whole group, are fundamentalists and mm. uh, fundamentalists for the Red God, the same one that Melisandra is a fundamentalist. Mm. But they're much more likeable, aren't they? I, I felt real warmth from Beric and Thoros, despite what they've been through and despite what they're doing. Mm. They felt quite humane and quite human, much more so than Melisandre.
0: Well, I think that's because you and me, we grew up in England where Robin Hood is still a very powerful myth. And these are absolutely, they're Robin Hood. You know, they're they're Robin Hood with a subscription to a Bible magazine. Do you know what I mean? They are... Uh, They're bought in and they're sold out But they're acting in a way which is not about power But it is about serving people And Mm. I I find that quite interesting Because there is a really important distinction there Between Melisandre and them In that she's only interested in getting the guy she's chosen Into power Mm. And these guys They actually have a conversation don't they Where they talk about like Oh we're serving Robert and somebody goes he's dead And they're like yeah that's a problem Um, (laughs) but But he doesn't really seem to trip them up very much
1: yeah, it's um, this argument. It's, it's quite good because we get they—they're laying out the case for what they're doing and the noble pursuit of just looking after people mm-hmm. who have no one to look after them because the lords aren't interested in the common people, and this is what—that's that, who they're fighting for. And on mm-hmm. the other side, you've got the hound who who just thinks every, every, anything like this is just so much bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks the—he calls bullshit on knights. He calls bullshit on the Brotherhood Without Banners. He calls bullshit on the whole system. He hates yeah. everything, doesn't he, about yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's quite interesting. He, he describes, he says, a nice is a sword, nothing more, nothing less, you know. And mm. to dress it all up in these, you know, uh, protection and these are my vows. He says, it's all rubbish. You, in the mm-hmm. end, you're just a hired killer. And that's mm-hmm. what I am. And at least I know who I am. And it's yeah. two very strong arguments coming up against each other, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I like seeing a bit more of the hounds' philosophy because we've seen clearly he hates knights, and we've mm. assumed that that's because his brothers like the the capo de tutti cock. Yeah. But we haven't actually ever heard it from his lips. We just have this weird sort of outsider status that he's got. Yeah. So I, I really like this this um this debate sort of for that reason yeah.
1: Yeah, and the Hound actually, um, I mean, he's aggressive and mocking of everybody. He's not trying to sort of get anybody on his side. Mm. In fact, he's doing the opposite. But he also actually does a very good case for the defence for himself. And all these accusations which the Brotherhood are hurling at him to give them a reason to kill him he manages to bat back he says you know they're saying about all these women and children who were killed at somewhere called the Mummer's Ford, then he says i wasn't i wasn't there it wasn't you know lay your dead children at someone else's door and mm-hmm. then they say about all these things that gregor clegane's done and he says you know i'm he's my brother it's not me he's, i think he says is being born a clegane a crime now yeah. and he, he's, his defenses are all quite and then even when you know when they're laying, All the things that Lannisters Lannisters have done at his door, he again has this argument where he just says, "You know what? This is what knights are. You're a hired sword, and you kill who you're told to kill, and you don't question. And that's, you know, that's the whole point of this system. And you can't, on one hand, talk about how great it is to be a knight, and on the other hand, accuse me of killing people, you know, because I'm a knight."
0: I tell you what this felt like to me is him. This is an argument I think he's had in his head thousands of times. Yeah, Particularly when he says, is being born a again a crime? Because mm. I think he feels like it kind of is. And he's kind of tarred yeah. with this brush. And so this is an argument he's had against himself many, many times. So yeah. he goes from being this sort of hired sword with sort of weird character traits to being mm. a kick-ass lawyer. Like, it's one of the best yeah. courtroom scenes you've ever seen, isn't it? It's sort <laughs> of it's the, a few good men, but with armour on <laughs> Yeah, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah, so he he does it. I mean, there's a there's this long list of names that the Lannisters have killed, and actually, I felt a little um, gut punch here when one of the names read out is Alan of Winterfell. who has been killed, and mm. he's the guy. If you remember when Harwin was talking to Arya about, you know. Um, what happened to Beric and the big group at the very beginning when the Hound ambushed them? Mm. And this guy called Alan, who was one of the captains at Winsfell, sort of got everyone together and led them like broke the uh, led them on a charge to break out, and was the reason anyone survived. And for the last couple of chapters, I've been wondering when he's going to show up, and it turns mm. out he's just he's just another name now, which he's, who's been killed at some point during a raid. Yeah. And it's just it shows how quickly uh, minor characters as well as majors just, just get snuffed out in the blink of an eye, really.
0: I totally um, didn't notice that, but you can always... I mean, I wonder if Harwin knew. Because then you've mm. got, as well as everything else in this scene, you've got, he's dead.
2: Yeah.
1: You
0: know, yeah. I really, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult.
1: Yeah. So in the end, the the only... Uh, I mean, a surprise like, a witness for the prosecution's Aya who pops up and says, you killed the butcher's boy... And again, his defense, Clegane's defense to that is, you know, um, he he attacked the prince. And mm. when she says that Joffrey was lying, he's like, it's not my place to question princes. Mm. And again, it's just, he's got a sort of a, a solid defense for everything, it seems. Yeah. Even though, you know, you take a step back and he still killed a child. So, um, you know, is there really any defense for that? Um but in the end, they decide to do trial by combat, which which turns into this awesome sword fight between Beric, who's got this flaming sword, and the Hound, who's afraid of fire, but still manages hmm. to just about keep his, keep himself alive anyway. And yeah. I just thought it was like the Jamie and Brienne sword fight. When he does a sword fight, he does it really well, George Martin.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was properly dramatic, wasn't it? And all of a sudden, because the Hound has suddenly come out with all of these arguments and given you all this character insight, you're like,
1: don't kill him! Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I didn't want, I didn't want to see him die here. But also, I quite liked Beric, so I didn't know which way to go. Because mm. uh, we
0: kind of have been. There's been a, Beric's been set up for a long time as this sort of like great hope. Because people have been talking about this pack of wolves roaming around in this sort of area, seeming mm. to do justice and survive and stuff. And it's all tied to the name Beric Dondarrion. So you're like, this guy's too interesting to lose. The Hound is too interesting to lose. And yet they are fighting each other with swords. Yeah, really tense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, not just for practice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and um, in the end, uh, through this like strange stroke of fortune, Beric is killed because um, just as the hound looks like he's gonna, it looks like it's all over for him. Beric's sword snaps, and the hound almost cuts the poor guy in two. Um, Yeah, but then within like five minutes, Beric's back on his feet. And it looks like it, that Thoris is the greatest living medic of all time. <laughs> what what, what did does. you make of
0: that? Well, we, first of all, because I mean, Thoris is a priest of the Red God, right? So yeah. we have seen some idea of this Red God or those who follow him having certain power to maintain life. Like Melisandre should have been dead. A you mm. know book and a half ago, um, but she's not. Um, I tell you what I liked about this though was uh, Beric and in the TV series is just sort of brooding and has an yeah. eye patch, sure, but still yeah. looks like quite stacked. And in the um, in the book, he's like he's got a massive black mark around his neck where he was hung to death, mm. and he's got a hole through his torso. And yeah. stuff like that um and uh and uh you know an open eye socket where he took an arrow and stuff and it, it's mm. you get a much better sense of um the way he's being kept alive it's yeah. you know or the fact that he is he seems to be alive still costs yeah. him something whereas in the tv series it's just like oh he's back oh all right
1: yeah he's um he's described in the book as a scarecrow of a man um mm. And very different to how he was before, okay, next up is uh Catlin. It's uh, her dad's funeral, Hoster Tully has, has died mm-hmm. now finally, and they're sort of see giving him a big send off. It's Edmure's job to sort of fire a fire arrow into the boat to set the guy gar- to set his dad alight as he's sailing off down the river um and he can't do it he, he, I think he makes three attempts and he misses every time, and in mm-hmm. the end, the blackfish shoots for him and um and does it. It's injured I just want, the only reason thing I wanted to say about this is in the series, um sort of Edmure misses a couple of arrows and sort of the blackfish just sort of thinks, Oh for fuck's sake and <laughs> pushes him out of the way and does it almost yeah. contempt well com- completely contemptuously. Yeah. In this one, um in this in the book he's much more sympathetic to Edmure. He sort of puts his arm on his shoulder and says, Look, you you know, uh, your dad missed the first time when his grandad um, mm-hmm. was being carried off as well and there's no shame in it and mm-hmm. then he fires the arrow and you know does it yeah. I just thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that the Blackfish is much more is a much harder character in the series and in the book he's very talented but also there's a real uh, warmth to him in the way he's tr- he used to treat Catelyn and, and Lysa when they were little and the way he, sort of, he is with Edmure here as well And mm-hmm.
0: I think that's really necessary because otherwise River Run is quite a cold place you know, you've mm. got Catelyn falling apart because her kids are all being killed and her family's scattered and stuff. Um, and you've got Edmure, who is becoming more and more laughable the more time goes on. Mm. Um, and and he just seems to be kind of full of wounded pride. Um, and uh, and you sort of need a bit of warmth there, whereas in the TV series, that, that feels lacking mm. to me anyway. I don't know, what did you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's because they've 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 hardly got any time to establish what the Blackfish is. So, mm. they've got to just decide, you know, they can't make make him too complicated or complex a character. So, just mm. to just to make it clear what kind of guy he is. He's just very gruff. And is yeah. is it's, it's obviously nice deep down, but he's mm. it, mostly gruff and no-nonsense, isn't he? He's mm-hmm. Mr. no-nonsense mm-hmm. the Blackfish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: There's no denying yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Um I think also in the series because the Great John disappears in the series, mm. and I think he—I think they kind of use the Blackfish to take his place a bit as well. He's a sort of strong, um, strong arm of Rob's army as well, you know. Because yeah. in in the book, when Karstark um accuses Rob as being the king who lost the North, it's the Great John, isn't it, who gives yeah. chins him? Yeah. Um, in the in the series, it's the Blackfish who does that. Yeah, because I think they're just slimming down on characters. We're, we're we're doing a Catelyn chapter, so you know, as the sun rises in the uh, west and sets in the east, there will be bad news when we come to Catelyn, and of course <laughs> there are, there is bad news. So the news of Sansa getting married has arrived. So that oh, yeah. is pretty that pretty much means. I mean. This really shows the enormity of what's happened here because yeah. Rob's saying, um, you know, if I, if I had the time again, I would trade Sansa for Jamie mm. and then try and marry Sansa to the Tyrells so we could get the Tyrells on side. Yeah. And he's thinking that would, would have been quite a smart move tactically, but he just didn't think of it at the time. And, you know, yes. everyone can always come up with these plans in hindsight, but it does sound like it might have worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but now Sansa's married to, to, to Tyrion, there's no way that they can ransom her back. because she's not theirs anymore effectively so they've lost her and and the the the, you really feel again as we said last time that uh rob is the only thing keeping the north going now and catelyn says that to him and he says you know i'm not i'm not dead yet mum and um and she's sort of saying make sure you don't because i'm not going to be able to take it if you uh If you if you're killed and to be honest, at this point I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much down with Catelyn as well here. (laughs) I could take it. I couldn't (laughs) hack that. Like just because
0: because so much of the story that I care about is revolves around the Starks. Yeah. And without them, I'm not really certain who I'd care about. You know? Yeah. Like Tyrion, definitely. John. Yeah. And then Daenerys to a certain extent. But after that I'm sort of like Yeah. You know, I just don't feel invested in like the well being of, of certain characters, you know?
1: Yeah. Such is Catelyn's worry. She says to um to Rob to uh actually sue for peace. And she says, you know, maybe it's time to cut our oh, yeah. losses now and just try and defend the north. Yeah. And and he says, you know, they killed they killed my dad and I'm never gonna sue for for peace, you know, around the, until been that. that's been yeah, until that's been settled mm. and he actually says um he sort of, he sort of uses that against her and, and and says you know i thought you know you'd be more on my side have you forgotten what they did to, to him and she sort of there's this very quick line where she says she'd never hit she'd never um struck one of her children before but she very nearly did then the the other thing is there's this uh meeting with the phrase the phrase have come back to to offer some chance of getting them back on side. Mm. And the the big problem here is that uh, <laughs> the, the news of what's happened in Winterfell has arrived, which is basically it's been put to the torch. Yeah. Uh, so Rob was hoping that um, it was going to be taken back. And mm. the last he'd heard, yeah. you know, Sir, Roder- Sir Roderick was outside. With a
0: massive Doing horse. the business,
1: yeah. Yeah. But it turns out... Winterfell has obviously burned to the ground now, and the story coming from the north is that when the uh, st- when the Stark army surrounded Winterfell, the Ironborn put it to the torch, and then um, Sir Roderick was killed storming the castle, mm. and Ramsay Bolton the bastard um, saved the few people who were left and took them back to the Dreadfort after Winterfell had been burned. Is that the story indeed? which is obviously bollocks from what we've seen
0: (laughs) yeah because what happened was Ramsay Bolton turned up first betrayed Sir Roderick then betrayed Theon then torched the place and ran off again cackling
1: yeah Yeah. enjoying the just yeah just loving the fact he was such a bastard yeah he's Mm. like
0: bastard by name bastard by nature zing 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 yeah takes such
1: glee in it doesn't he so this puts even more pressure on Rob to get home and mm. um, and the the phrase say you know we're, we're willing to get back on your side, but we we want a marriage, and they want they want Ed now to marry to marry one of Frey's daughters, mm, and they want it, they want it to happen as soon as possible. They want effectively like a shotgun marriage because <laughs> um, yeah. they're saying, you know we don't want to wait because the last time we did that, mm-hmm. look what happened.
0: And, and the thing is, they've got them banged to rights as well, haven't they? For all that you yeah. really don't like the phrase, they've got them absolutely banged to rights.
1: Yeah. And Edmure is like, can I not at least pick the bride? And they say, no. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's quite an
0: achievement, <laughs> isn't it? That they've sent these two phrases over to be like, to kind of sulk, but in a diplomatic way. Yeah. You know, you've got to send people over there just to be surly and like you fucking wankers. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. And in the end, Edmure, here. I mean, he moans a bit, fair enough. But he's a good sport in the end. He says, oh, well, I'll do it, you know, and damn you all. (laughs) (laughs) And it was great when they say, um, you know, this is your chance to make amends for that battle which you you didn't have to fight and you fought. Mm. And um, and he's like, uh, yeah, well, I thought, Like, by making amends, there'd be something a bit different, like single combat with Jamie Lannister or something, not marrying a (laughs) fray. And he says a lot, doesn't
0: it, about the attitude of men in this time, that they're like, (laughs) I would rather fight this formidable war bastard than marry, who is this woman? Marry beneath (laughs) myself as well. That's the thing, isn't it? This is a massive trade up for the phrase.
1: Yeah, I don't think Edmure's even that bothered about that though. He just wants he was at least wants her to be good looking, and that's of his big problem with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, is it for, for all his faults? He's he's really quite likable. Edmure, I think.
0: I find him quite funny, certainly yeah. in this scene because at yeah. the end of it, he's basically just goes, "Oh fuck it, all right then."
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, but run to Davos next, and um, oh, Davos. he's been summoned summoned by the king. Remember, the last we were with him, he was stuck in a in a in a cell with mm. uh with the old hand of the king uh, Alistair Florent and uh, this guy called Axel uh comes down Axel Florent which is Alistair's brother who's the captain of the guard or the Castilian mm. and uh, as he's taking as as Axel's taking Davos to see the king mm. um, Axel says you know um, you need to convince him to make me hand of the king uh, and if you if you do. I'll give you a ship back and if you don't I'll make sure you die at some point so in some horrible accident. It's, yeah. it's really threatening. Um, yeah, And I don't know, I got the feeling that Axel's speaking to Stannis in the way that he speaks to people below him and Axel just assumes that he can he can force the smaller people to do what he wants just out of fear. Yeah, And I'd imagine that's just worked for him for the, all his life so far because he's an extremely powerful lord and people like Davos shouldn't even be you know, the the knights just about because yeah. Stannis, you know, because he did well smuggling yeah. onions one time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this this meeting with Stannis, uh, Davos realizes that Stannis has has lost a lot of weight and he looks ten years older. He mm. looks really haggard and old. Mm. And obviously, whatever Stannis is doing with Melisandre, it's not good for his health.
0: Yeah. Uh, hey, here's a thing. Just thought of this. We we mm. didn't see Stannis at all at the Battle of the Blackwater, did we? I mean, we know he was there and stuff, but we—he's yeah. not a POV character, so we didn't really see what was going on with him, right? No. Has he done a Beric Dondarrion? Do you think? Has he been like on the point of death, and the Red Woman's had to revive him?
1: Well, possibly, yeah. Because that because yeah.
0: that's definitely taken out of Dondarrion, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I assumed it was because of these shadow babies, and he loses <laughs> he loses pieces of himself as he does that yeah there's there's a a real theme of of sort of sacrificing something that you can never get back um in your dealings with this red god isn't there yeah yeah when you make these deals you lose something yeah 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 uh so there's this plan which axel florence has um to get to get back into the war and his plan is to sail to claw isle which is uh it's a it's a sort of an island which is loyal which used to be loyal to Stannis up until the point where Stannis lost the battle and now the, the, the commander's gone the sort of lord has gone over to has gone over to Joffrey. And uh, the the plan is to sail there because it's hardly held by anybody, it's just women and children now. Kill everybody and show what happens to traitors. <laughs> and there's this yeah. really grand defence for this is I mean, Davos has the chance here to support that and get a ship back you know and, and sort of do this deal with axel yeah but he doesn't he does a very grand defense of the uh of the people they're saying you know the reason there are only women and children left are because when you you know when stannis when you called the banners this guy came with all of his strength to support you yeah. and yeah he's gone over to the other side but you know you can maybe you can blame him for doing that but his men just follow who you know who yeah who who they told and Stannis is all like, Well i I'm the I'm the rightful king, so there's no defence And Davos goes really close to overplaying his hand by saying he takes a chance and says, Well, what about when Robert rose up against Eris? Weren't you a were rebel then? Yeah and he's he's absolutely got him, hasn't he? he because yeah, it's yeah, yeah. exactly right. And and once Stannis sends away Axel Florent, he says, you know, that was a really hard decision and he still, you know, thinks on it. Because mm. it is the classic, Stannis is just Mr. Rulebook, yeah. but also when his brother rises up, it's do you choose blood or, or the rules, I suppose. Mm.
0: And I find it really interesting to see somebody who's so in love with his principles as Stannis have that struggle. Because we've mm. already had Jamie Lannister say, you know, they make you swear and swear and swear. And to to him, that just means all the vows are meaningless and you just pick which one you want to keep. And mm. Stannis somehow has a much more complicated worldview where you somehow have to keep all of them. And, um, and that's a much more interesting thing to explore for me to see a character like him really get into it. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, I tell you what I thought the most actually was this whole scene. He's so, so, so good, um, as a character, because on the one hand, he's like absolutely black and white. These are the rules. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. No exceptions. This is it and then somebody mentions the shadow babies and he becomes quite defensive and he's like ask anybody mm. I wasn't there and yeah, then a couple yeah. of lines further on he says uh, ask Melisandre, you know um she knows that it didn't happen like that um yeah. like implying that she was there when when renly was killed by the shadow mm. baby yeah. and and so he's he's clearly he's he's, he's almost split into two halves cuz one half of him desperately passionately believes in absolutely doing things right and by the rules. And the other half of him absolutely, desperately, passionately believes that he should be king and he can do whatever he can to get that role. Mm. And that includes, and he knows that includes, all of these terrible things. Making mm. deals with the Red God, you know, giving bits of his soul away to be shadow baby assassins and the rest of it. And um, and, and it's tearing him in half. And mm. it's really strange to see that in a character who doesn't just break down, you know, to see him try and carry around these two warring halves of himself.
1: Yeah. We visit this again, um, this idea of the fact that he isn't, it isn't an ego thing with Stannis, it doesn't seem. It isn't, I believe I should be king because I'm the best person for the job. It's just, I am the person who should be king, and there's no sort of want or... Uh, anything else involved with it? It's not whether I really would prefer to go and sit on the Iron Throne, and I don't like it on Dragonstone or anything like that. Yeah. It's just the fact that this is how it is, and yeah. there's, you know, there's nothing else to do other than do everything to, 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 to sort of fight for what it, what's right in his mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, very weird, and that's compounded by Melisandre in his ear all the time, saying he's this chosen warrior and the only chance of saving Westeros. So he's got that to carry as well. (laughs) I just got the sense of a a guy just sort of really straining under all this pressure and just he's he's the kind of character which isn't really cut out to deal with that kind of thing.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's killing him and you know it's it's sort of like watching somebody trying to hold you know like when you get magnets and they've got a north pole and a south pole and he's trying to hold the two north poles together and yeah. he just he, like and he's trying to live on that space and it just is not going to happen
2: yeah
0: um uh I, again though i'm really interested in what this tells us about the different type of red god religion between Melisandre and Beric dendarian mm. um because Melisandre seems to be much more, you know, end justifies the means. And Beric Dendarion seems to be much more that, you know, the means is everything. Um, and I wonder whether, is Beric Dondarrion looking, looking for this resurrected individual as well? Is he mm-hmm. about to find somebody else and say, oh, uh, it's him? Um, and are we about, you know, could you see like a kind of war of the messiahs almost?
1: Yeah, possibly. I I wonder whether Beric is really um, concerned about anything beyond just protecting people. I get the feeling there are two things here. Um, Even though, like you said before, Melisandra's about power, and Beric's just about looking after people and serving, almost. Mm. But um, I also think you could could say, on one hand, Beric is quite small-time limited goals, and Melisandre is the version of him but big picture sort of the greater good sort of thing so he, mm-hmm. you know i'm sure melisandre's defense would be when you say when you're supporting Barrick that it's all very well support you know helping the odd community out and protecting them mm-hmm. but it's not going to make a difference when you know the white walkers come south of the wall mm-hmm. you need to ha- you need to have the power the all the power of the kingdom united behind you to have any chance of stopping it and mm-hmm. having a small group of bandits helping out Communities is, is going to be neither here nor there. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, if Melisandra's right, that's a SmackDown argument.
2: Mm.
0: And I'd be surprised if she was wrong, just because otherwise there's been all this shit about building up the White Walkers and then giving them like a diametrically opposed um, red god uh, who's all about fire and light. You know, mm. George Martin's been building this up for a long time and yeah. if this turns out not to be true then you know then he's just just the biggest red herring in the history of literature I think
1: yeah um, Davos is knighted uh, not knighted he's he's made a lord and he's he's becomes the hand of the king which is quite a turnaround he was in a dungeon It was in a dungeon at the start of this chapter and now he's the his second most powerful guy in the kingdom
0: see very enlightened prison policy isn't it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get him out of jail give him a lordship see how he does
1: Yeah, The interesting thing here as well is Stannis has seen the Fists of the First Men in the fire. He's seen the fight. Speaking of the others coming back, he's seen this fight. Yeah, And it's sort of convinced him once again of the importance of the job that he's trying to do. Mm. And the fact that he should try and do it by any means necessary. He he knows something's coming from the North now.
0: Mm. And I like this very much because this scene in the TV series... Would just it didn't seem to be about this at all didn't set up any further plot. It mm. was just Stannis staring at the flames and looking quite kind of beguiled and and it was it really fits with the character of Stannis in the TV series who doesn't have this strength of character at all he actually seems to be quite a weak person who's mm. almost hypnotized by the uh, the prospect of power and is just willing to let Melisandra do whatever she wants in order to get him, get him there sort of thing Mm. whereas in in the series in the book sorry i I find it much more believable this whole thing of like this guy of iron on it an absolute adherence to what's right and what's wrong um and why and 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 to have him explain this experience this what he's seen in the flames makes kind of contributes to that character and gives him a lot more juice because in the tv series you know, I'm just waiting for Stannis to do something stupid and get himself killed because he's too weak. Mm. He's a very weak yeah. character, whereas in the book he's much more rounded.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, there's also the, the last bit here. It's inter- there are limits to what Stannis will do um, in his sort of deal with the Red God here. Uh, he, he, he ends the chapter by throwing these three leeches on the fire. Effectively, it seems cursing the three usurpers who are left. So Balon Greyjoy... Joffrey Baratheon and Rob Stark mm. says they're all these pretenders, and he throws them on the fire in this mm. kind of curse. Um, but also, Melisandre has said, uh, you, we, "You know, you need to give me Edric Storm, that the, you know, the, uh, one of Robert's bastards, mm. um, who's on the island, and she wants to obviously sacrifice him to the Red God, and Stannis won't allow it." Yeah. And he sort of has a red line there, doesn't he? Yeah. And it's just interesting that he does have a line, which he won't cross.
0: And he has a very strong idea of sort of death is the ultimate punishment and it's the price that many people might have to pay for their actions, but mm. it is a punishment and they only do it when people deserve it. Yeah. Uh, that's what he says, isn't it? He? He's like, Edric Storm didn't do anything wrong to me.
1: Yeah. And it's all, I think it's also, there's an element of going back to his decision to support Robert in the uh, Usurper War in the rebellion, mm. Mm. this battle between um, blood and honor, if you like, mm. and how blood won out, even though honor said that he should support Eris. Mm. um and this time as well, even though honor suggests for the greater good, if you believe everything Melisandre says, you should sacrifice this boy to save thousands of others in the future. Yeah. yeah. Um. But it's it's his, a he hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent, and b it's his own blood again, mm. and I just—I just think sometimes that is the point which does stop Stannis going further.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And um, and again, it says something interesting about Stannis. He's actually got balls in the book, whereas in the TV series, he's almost cuckolded by his own desire for power.
1: Yeah, he just does everything that she says, doesn't he? Yeah, moments. and
0: it's, and that's and actually that's what I find is so frustrating for that reason because it's like, well. I know that I don't like Melisandra and I know that Stannis is just going to do what, we, what she says. Can we skip this scene, please? Is kind of how I feel about yeah. it in the TV series. Whereas in yeah. the book, this brings a bit more kind of tension into it, you know?
1: Yeah, it does seem that in the TV series, most of Stannis' actions are Melisandra tells him to do something. He bleats about it for a little bit and then does it. Yeah. And That's that, pretty much and what that, happens, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and there's no tension in that.
1: Hmm. Okay, let's move on. Bath, bath time with Jamie and Brienne. <laughs> God save us from
0: that <laughs> time with
1: Jamie Lannister. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jamie and Brienne share a bath as they're recovering at Harrenhal from their experience. And we hear this story again, it's a bit more fleshed out, the story of the Mad King's demise and Jamie's oh, it's part great, in it. Isn't it? Yeah, they look they're really good these, aren't they, these little recollections of how everything went wrong in King's Landing mm-hmm. um, at the very end of the Mad King's reign. Mm. And this idea of the fact that uh, these pyromancers became like this, the closest advisors to the king. And you just really sense this feeling of increasing madness around the court. And in the end, they hid all this, all these caches of effectively like mini bombs all around the city to yeah. burn it to the ground. And obviously the moment when Jaime decided to to kill the Mad King was when the Mad King was about to order to burn the city to the ground. Yeah, and he actually, in the days after, goes after these other pyromancers and kills them as well, so they yeah. can't do it. And um, yeah, it's just it's it, it's really in a similar way to the hound. It's a case for the defense, this, isn't it? And it really and is. Yeah. There's this great line where Jamie says, "By what right does the wolf judge the lion?" Referring to when sort of Ned walked into the throne room to see Jamie sitting there with his bloody sword and immediately judged him as guilty. Yeah, yeah. and Actually, very interesting, isn't it? And it and it shows the. I think that line as well, just gives you a bit more insight into the real conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters as well, and J- why Jamie was so quick to fly off the handle for any slight. any I suppose mm. it 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 made a bit it a bit more. Um, Understanding for me, uh, the way that Jamie really disliked Ned at the very start of the book, at uh, the first book, and he just yeah. seemed like this this sort of black and white antagonist character. Who you've got yeah. this Ned character who you like, and there's this prick who, for, for no apparent reason, is doing everything he can to yeah, yeah. To, to 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 put things in his way.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's very true. um I like this because it makes, again, it rounds out Jamie, and it shows you that he actually does care. Because, I mean, really, what he's doing here, am I right in thinking it, if you burn the city to the ground, what you end up with is um, uh, all, the, all of these little stashes of wildfire would explode, wouldn't they? Mm. So it's a war yeah. crime, basically, is what you're preventing. You're preventing the entire city from being slaughtered by their own king.
2: Yeah. yeah. Hard
0: to argue against that.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, and yet you know, Jamie, you know Jamie really feels hard done by by it. However, I bet you a million that when Ned Stark walked into the throne room, he didn't say, "I know what you're thinking." (laughs) Let me explain. I bet he stood there and went, "I am a Lannister. Who the fuck are you?"
1: Yeah, of course he did, and that's part of uh, Jamie's character flaw, isn't it? He's too proud to even state his own defence. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He's too proud to give someone the option of saying, "I don't believe you." so mm. he just says yeah I just did what I wanted to do mm. and he he hides behind this sort of sardonic humour doesn't he and this sort of um, I don't know this withering attitude towards everybody else and it, in, a, in a way it's part of a defence for him as well
0: yeah yes that's very true
1: it, we, we have this dinner where um, Jamie and Brienne sit down with Ruth Bolton to talk over what's going to happen next uh, Ruth says that uh they've found Aya, which came out of nowhere to me. I didn't yeah. know she'd been found. That, for last, thing, last thing we heard, she's with Beric, so I don't know what's happened there. So is uh,
0: has she been sold out or is Beric working for Bolton?
1: Ah, good point, yeah. It should be a strange bedfellows, wouldn't they? It? But it's entirely possible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be. And uh also there's this long jo- drawn out discussion between Roose Bolton and Jamie, and you sit you find that Roose Bolton's kind of negotiating here. He is um he's not sure about Rob, is he? Um no. and how the Starks are going. And in the end his his decision is to send uh, to send Jamie back to King's Landing. And it's not because of this vague hope that Sansa's going to be, you know, returned. It's just because he wants he seems to just want to keep Tywin Lannister on side because I think he sees the way this war's going which is not good.
0: Yeah. But this is dangerous shit. This is one of mm. this is one of Rob's commanders having being in a position to make Rob astonishingly powerful. Well, you know, really turn his situation around, and mm. instead going, nah, nah there's yeah. no money in that. And you, you wonder how else he will apply that calculation.
1: Well, you just get the feeling that he. The worst thing for Rob here is it seems that. Um, even though Tywin's in King's Landing and Rob's in River Run, Bolton's more worried about Tywin's reaction to to what he does with Jamie than Rob's reaction. Mm. I think he's weighing it up and thinking it's I, I, I'll be in more trouble if I send this guy to Rob than I would if I send him to Tywin because Tywin's more powerful now. Mm. And that's a, that. Yeah, that is a you don't want your your commanders thinking that <laughs> thinking that. <laughs> So, yeah, 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 yeah. Another kick in the balls for Rob there. Um, and also, speaking of bad things, um, Brienne has been kept at Harrenhal Hall as well uh, as a reward to Vargo Holt. Uh, he's oh, gonna, Bruce Bolton's going to give her to, that's to Vargo all right. Holt. And, ja- and Jamie, I mean, we spent some of this chapter thinking he's not that bad a bloke. He's fine with that. <laughs> he's not bothered about Brienne at all, is he, for all they've been through? Yeah, and he has he has this
0: moment, this really sympathetic moment, where the, you know they're they're in the bath, not in a mm. sexy way, and um, uh, and then like uh, he nearly passes out, and she rushes to help him, and she says it's the Kingslayer, and he says no, my name's Jamie, and you're like holy mm. crap, he has a soul, you know, <laughs> and then then he goes up to dinner, and he's like, what you're going to give it to the, the horrendous madman who chopped off my arm, and yeah, yeah that's all right,
1: don't bother me. <laughs> yeah exactly uh okay next up tyrium this is interesting because this is the first time um that we reach series 4 of um of game of thrones um there, there's an awful lot of um of book still to come even in the next part of a storm of swords which is covered in Game of Thrones series three. But this is where the bleed through really starts to happen. So this, uh, this, this chapter is part of series four, not series three. And then the rest of it is, you know, we're going to slip back in time again. God, that's confusing. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it's Tyrion on a horse with uh, Podrick Payne and Braun and a few other people riding out to meet the Martells. They've sent this de- delegation and it's this new group of characters we haven't met before. Mm. Called the Dornishmen, mm. um, or the uh, who are the the biggest house of the Martels, and they're from the sort of south of Westeros, and they've kept out of the war up to now, mm. and they're quite an interesting bunch, aren't they? I mean, in terms of a people, it seems they're loosely based around three types. You've got these um, almost Western uh, sort of race of people who are in the mountains of Dawn sort of these tall, blonde-haired people who who get sunburnt all the time because of how hot it is. <laughs> uh, descendants of the Andals and the First Men and stuff. And then you've got the Sandy Dornishmen who are sort of like a... Loosely seem to be based on sort of Arab kind of culture with these... Um, or maybe even Turkish... You know, sort of... It's all like uh, uh, silks and uh, copper and uh, it feels quite, you know, desert-based culture. And mm. then you've got the the salty Dornishmen on the very south, which are on the coast, and they seem sort of olive-skinned Mediterranean-style people. So it's this weird collection of different peoples all wrapped up together in one small part of Westeros.
0: Yeah, you feel this has real real juice, doesn't it? This real potential to be an interesting thing, because we've only heard about the Dornishmen as kind of... They're definitely part of the Seven Kingdoms, but they're also definitely a bit weird. And they're, Mm. they're lords who are traded with, but we haven't actually met any of them yet, have we?
1: No, the only P- the only Dornishman I think we've actually met so far is um Angie, you know, the archer, Ooh. who's with the Brotherhood of Without Banners. And They're he's right. one of the one of the mountain guys, so he's one of the sort of Western Dornishmen. Yeah. And um he's the only I think he's the only one I can think of who who we've come across so far. Yeah. And he's very different to this group that that turn up here, who are led mm. by this guy called Oberin Martel, who's known as the Red Viper. And it turns out the Oh, the, another thing that's strange about the Dornishmen and the Martels, the the sort of the head of house isn't the lord; it's a guy, is Prince Oberyn. He's a prince, mm. so it's almost like a separate king. It's almost a semi-independent kingdom, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And he's called Prince, and and the 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 Red Viper sort of the son of this. The, this guy is called Prince Oberyn Martell, who's so fat and gouty <laughs> that he can't travel <laughs> anywhere. So he sent his his brother in his place. Yeah, um, and it seems that. Oberin, the leader, is is quite level headed and cautious and sorry, not Oberin, um Doran Martel, the, the leader is quite level headed and cautious. And the Red Viper, who's his younger brother, is mm. this hothead who's after vengeance no matter what. And he's the guy who's turning up in King's Landing. And Tyrion <laughs> immediately says, This guy's gonna cause the gutters to run with blood. He's notoriously short fused. <laughs>
0: And I love this because you you mostly right because you feel it coming at the end of the book and you're like, oh, this is going to go someplace. Mm. You know, well, at the end of the volume, at least, isn't it? This, Um But just like that Tyrion entertains no hope whatsoever when he sees who it is. He's like, like he sees it. They come close when he sees his face and he's like, oh, people are going to die. Mm. Like Ian just knows that's the way it's going to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so the, the Red Viper's first sort of conversation with Tyrion, he's already trying to create a, a reaction. He's mm. <laughs> his way of introducing himself to Tyrion is to start talking about how all these stories were circulating when Tyrion was born about how much of a monster he was and how mm. literally people thought he had a tail and a, mm-hmm. a head that was three times the size of anyone else's, mm. and um, and also he, he recounts this story about how Cersei used to abuse Tyrion when he was a baby and stuff. And hated him, yeah. and it's just Oberyn, uh, the, the Red Viper, is just kind of watching him for reactions and stuff as well. And yeah. he's making these demands. He's basically saying, "I hear that. I think he says sometimes. Like, I hear there are seventy courses being served at the wedding, but when's the justice going to be served?" And uh, then he's like, <laughs> <laughs> and "Zing!" He's, he, yeah, he basically wants um, Gregor Clegane's head on a plate, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I don't, I don't know, worth briefly mentioning. That's because. um, the Martells have this connection to uh, the old king, and I think he—I think one of the Martells' daughters was married to uh, some member of the. I think he's uh, some member of the royal family, and they were killed in the big sack of King's Landing mm-hmm. by Gregor Clegane. Mm-hmm. So this is the whole the whole thing about wanting revenge for it, and they've never forgiven the uh, they've never forgiven the Cleganes for that, or the yeah. Lannisters for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, and there's also the small matter of the, the the Tyrells and the Dornish... and the Tyrells and the and the Martells hate each other as well. And um, <laughs> do you know Willis Tyrell's this crippled guy who yeah. stays in Highgarden? Yeah. It turns out he was crippled by the Red Viper in a tournament. He knocks him off his horse, and Bloody hell. it seems like it was an accident. But then yeah, seems know. this is a guy who fights with a poisoned spear. <laughs> it's yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what did you make know. of all this? This is a lot of. It's a lot of sort of plot to suddenly dump on you at the towards the end of this half of the book.
0: It is. Um, but it's like like previous final chapters of, of these books where you're just like, Yeah, bring it on, bring it on. I wanna I wanna know what happens next, I wanna know more, I wanna know more. Um yeah. and uh I like this chapter. First of all, because I, I think, just for sheer balls-out effrontery, I just flippin' love this Red Viper guy. Just, you know, you're riding up to the representative of the king, who is also, um, you know, the son of one of the most powerful families in the land. And he essentially doesn't waste any time in in the crudest possible offence-giving, you know what I mean? It's as if he rode up and, uh, and Tyrion went, good to see you, and he just answered, that's what your mum said! You know, it's yeah. <laughs> like go straight in on that level. Um, and I love seeing Tyrion's responses as well because Tyrion's been quite downtrodden recently, mm. you know, been inside his head and feeling his anxieties and his insecurities. And then in this scene, we just come right back outside, and all you hear about his thoughts are what he's saying at certain points. Yeah. And you, you know, you don't have any internal monologue, you know, when, when, um, uh, when, uh, the prince says, you know, uh, you know, you had a tail or whatever it is. You don't sure. hear him go, Oh, uh, you know, another kind of insult, the sort that he was so used to receiving. You just see his <clears throat> response, which is just yeah. like, ah, and all the prostitutes are sad that I don't still have it. You know, like, you just <laughs> like, and so you get this really strong sense of how good Tyrion is at swallowing his pride and not yeah. taking offense. And so yeah. it actually for me it kind of reestablishes Tyrion a little bit as kind of a kind of a badass, kind of, yeah. you know, in that kind of rhetorical way.
1: Yeah. Because he's just it's got quite, such
0: control over himself.
1: It's quite funny as well, for all Tyrion's worries about how this is going to play out, he also does secretly um, he's quite looking forward to the uh, the meeting between the Red Knight and Joffrey. <laughs> it
0: is because Joffrey's been telling these Dornishman jokes, which would which would seem to be in the same the same category as the sort of jokes that many English people tell about the Irish, you know. And it's just where the premise is that they're just really stupid, and the fact is that the jokes themselves aren't really very clever. Um, And like, and so I just, I just love the idea because it's like, it's like having Bernard Manning as king or like chief of the diplomatic corps, isn't it? It's just like, like welcoming you to a banquet and he's already got nine one-liners prepared about your particular ethnicity. And whatever else it is, it's not going to go well, but it's probably (laughs) going to be spectacular.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, Next up is an Arya chapter and there's this raid on the the, the bloody mummers there are uh, they, they've caught a few of their bloody mummers in this sort of sept i think mm. and they, they they raid it and kill as many of them as they can mm.
2: um
1: and it's it's another sort of very short sharp and quite exciting battle scene mm. and a, a little interesting aside angie the archer is using bodkin arrows arrows with bodkin points and these are kind of these are real in um uh, medieval warfare once again you know ca- much more
0: about medieval weaponry than i do <laughs> I <was laughs>
1: kidding, those. yeah well they, they kind of like um it was a different kind of arrowhead and i suppose the closest thing to to it is they, they're pretty much like the the medieval version of armor piercing bullets oh, so right. they, they were they were made in such a way as they were to they, they should i think the the general belief is they pierced um plate metal whereas normal oh, arrows hell. wouldn't they just bounce off yeah, yeah. So they're obviously a really important advance in technology during yeah, the Middle yeah, Ages, yeah. and for some reason, Angie's using them, so um he he really is an extremely dangerous character now yeah, um, I quite like that so there's often, often these little echoes with um with medieval warfare and weaponry and stuff. I mean I think some he, he mashes together quite a lot of different periods, you know the high middle ages and low middle, middle ages and all this. but um it's quite interesting to see how he does it mm um, hmm Anyway, yeah, so the 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 successful attack and uh, they hang a few of the a few of the perpetrators, and it's just it's just a bit of it's just a chance to, for us to watch the Brotherhood in action, isn't it? To see exactly what they do and how and how they conduct themselves. Mm. We also hear a bit more explanation about what's been happening to Beric and how he's still he's still alive, and apparently he's been brought back from the dead six times now by Thoros. And Bloody he hell. says that every time he's brought back, a peak, he loses a bit of himself. And he says yeah. he can't, he can't remember things like he can't remember. He vaguely remembers he used to own a castle in the marches somewhere, but he wouldn't be able to find it now. And he can't remember even things like what his favourite food is, or just just bits of his personality are being chipped away, mm-hmm. aren't they? And you really feel that is is there's, there's just this, it's just the real sadness about him and a, a real sense of death all around him yeah
0: and, the, and like you rightly say the cost of dealing with this red god yeah dangerous thing yeah but I tell you what's just occurred to me um, so he, he dies and then he comes back to life as a lesser being without the some of the many of the things that make him human mm. he's a zombie or he's, uh, he's yeah. in, a, in a, the part of a slow process of zombification as indeed are these cold beings up north? So, by the power of the Red God, he is basically becoming the same thing as what the power of the Cold Gods is supposedly doing as well.
1: Yeah, I suppose, I, I suppose he is. Although he he's capable, it doesn't seem that the um, the zombies, if you like, or the whites north of the wall, seem to be a bit like a hive mind. They just do what they're told to do, uh. and he seems to he he still has. Independent thought. Oh yeah, he? he's yeah, not yeah. just. But but yeah, I think you're right. He's obviously on the scale of human to white. He's moved far more towards white, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, it's, clearly he's not just shambling around going brains, brains. You know, because um, he's giving orders and making decisions and stuff. But it just occurred to me: is he not making quite a lot of decisions based on what Thoros says? Like, is there not a thing here where you've in both of these? You know, you've the you know you have this representative of the Red God, a priest of the Red God, mm. making
1: the decisions
0: really. So I yeah. wonder what Thoros's game is.
1: Yeah, so. well, I think with with Melisandre and Stannis' relationship, you feel it's sort of like a uh, uh, a, a powerful um, power behind the throne, special advisor, isn't it? Yeah. And um, coming in from nowhere, yeah. I got a <laughs> feelist Alistair
0: Campbell of Westeros. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I get the I get the feeling with with Beric and Thoros, it's really more about sort of two old friends just uh, sort yeah. of just getting through things together. Because he says, doesn't he, Thoros? The first time he died, he just he he wasn't like expecting the Red God. So he's not really, especially when he when this when this whole thing started, he wasn't much of a fundamentalist at all in fact he was barely religious <laughs> and it was just something when beric died something yeah. he just did for a friend because he was sad and he was just you know giving him a send-off yeah and then he came back and he was like F- holy shit <laughs> why <laughs> has this happened and um, they just it seems like it's just these two mates trying to deal with it isn't it the, I just don't know, how, when they were sitting around chatting here I got a sense of real camaraderie between the two of them which you'd never get between Stannis and Melisandre. it's a very different relationship
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah that's true
1: the, There's this sad moment with Aya as well where she hears about this power and she says can you bring back a a man without a head, you know, not six times just once and it's just again just misses her dad doesn't she?
0: Yeah and that childish thing um, mm. in the middle of all of this she could be forgiven for just being like, I don't know what the fuck is going on after the two, whatever it is now, two years that she's had. But, yeah. um, but she's still really like, can you, can you bring back my dad? And he's, yeah, it's so sad.
1: Mm. Another thing, she, she's losing someone else because Gendry decides he's going to join the Brotherhood uh, as an armourer. So he doesn't mm. want to go back to Riverrun with, with Arya. Mm. cuz it looks like i was going to, going back to Riverham. It, the, that's what Beric says now. We're going we're going to send you back. I'm sure Rob will pay the ransom and then you'll be back home safe and sound. Yeah. So it seems that at least at least one of these Stark characters seems to be on an upward tra- trajectory here. She's on yeah. she's on her way back. Yeah. Yeah. Um the, the other thing is they released the Hound. Uh <laughs> <laughs> released the Hound. <laughs> <laughs> um they, they uh they, re- they released the Hound, didn't they? And um <laughs>
0: I can't hear it seriously now. Yeah. I really hope <laughs> I really Mr. hope Burns. he's never captured again just because of that yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs>
1: Release
0: really the hounds.
2: Um,
1: yeah, but he they set him free and he, he's he came back. Um he comes back in this chapter to ask for his money. The only thing left to him in the world is just this money which he's been using to drink himself to death. Yeah. Yeah, so he's come back and said, look, I want my gold back. You, you've stolen it from me. And they've basically given him an IOU, saying, like, when the war's over, you can have it back. Mm. But um, he... Obviously, that's the only thing left for the Hound. And, and they say that. That's one of the reasons he's come back. Is he's, And one of the reasons he was waiting to die when they... Um, and he wasn't afraid of them when they caught him. Yeah. He's nothing left now. He's lost, isn't he? Yeah. And he's, he's nowhere to... He's no one to serve. He's nowhere to go he's not really got any thoughts of his own because he's, he's just lived his life as a, as a hired sword. Mm. Um, so he's just slowly drinking himself to death with, yeah. this pot, with this pot of gold. And the reason he's come back is that he needs the gold to continue to drink and that's the only thing he cares about now. Yeah. yeah. Again, another, another side character, I suppose.
0: Very much. Very much.
1: Okay, last two chapters for the day. All right. Uh, next is Bran. And uh, Bran and friends arrive at this tower. Um it's a really cool set seen this. A really cool mm. setting. It's a tower on an island in the middle of a lake and you can get there by walking along a winding causeway which you can't see beneath the water. Sounds like an amazing place to defend, you know, yeah, you're yeah, going to yeah. get, you know. I wonder, I find it amazing that nobody lives there anymore. Actually Seems that's a like cool. perfect place, you know, perfect holdfast.
0: But it's in the north, yeah. isn't it? Like I mean, you know, you've got a you can't Farm when you're on an island like that, so you've got to you've got to have fields, and you know presumably they're all too threatened by wildlings and so on because the Night's Watch is so reduced.
1: Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. This yeah this this area that they've reached now is called the Gift, and it's called that because it, it's it's owned by the Night's Watch, so they're very close to the Wall now, and it, the Night's Watch owns this land, and people are supposed to work it and give taxes to them mm. for protection, but because the Night's Watch is so Depleted they 've not been able to stop wildling raids anymore, so people mm. have just moved away so there's all these abandoned villages in the north now mm-hmm. right, this, this far north near the wall mm-hmm. um, and they also say that the same thing happens to the great John and his um his people who are the yeah. furthest who are the people who live the furthest north and that's quite interesting because you can understand why his his people are probably the best fighters in Rob's army because mm. they fight all the time it's a similar to I think in medieval England. I think it there was a house, I think it was the Percy's. Um, but it was basically the people who lived um in sort of the you know, sort of Newcastle area or mm. um basically on the Scottish border. Yeah. Where like they were notorious for being the sort of the be- the people you desperately wanted in your army because yeah. they fought all the time anyway, because the yeah. Scots kept coming over yeah. for raiding parties.
0: So the ones the ones who survived were the ones who were seriously badass, the people who exactly. kept going, yeah. the people who practised, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that the great John's got this particularly they're they're a particularly martially uh, useful uh, group up there. Uh, so so they hide in this queen's tower, and uh, it's just next to a village, and this big group of of men arrive in the village, and it's basically this quite tense scene where uh, Bran and his group are hiding out in this tower, hoping that these men don't come over, mm. and they're just watching across the lake as these guys settle down, they can't work out who they are. They think they might be members of the Night's Watch, but they think yeah. if that was the case, they'd all be mounted. And there's just this bit of tension, isn't there?
0: There is. There, yeah, there is. And for good reason.
1: Yeah. Who could it be? Well, let's talk about John, the next chapter. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously By he's chance. on the way, <laughs> yeah, he's on the way south. They've climbed the wall now. Mm. So he's back in, he's back in the, his, his home, his home lands. Um, and, and, Obviously, there's there's just a little bit more development with him and Egret's how they're very close now, but this, there are, over certain things, are still very different. You know, she's a, a, still very much a wildling, and he's still very much a member of the Night's Watch for yeah. all their yeah. sort of intimacy. Yeah. Um, he criticises Egret's belief in Man's Raider yeah. and the fact that she thinks that the wildlings can win and come south and survive, and mm-hmm. he says, you're not disciplined enough, and discipline wins wars, yeah. and you, your people are going to get slaughtered eventually by people further south. He's yeah. probably got a point. He has. Um,
0: I mean, i tell you what I think of is um, uh, when the Romans invaded Britain, they turned up mm-hmm. with like 10,000 men, and I think that the um, Boudicca's mm-hmm. army contained like 150,000 men or something, and they just got hammered. Because mm. 150,000 men all stood in a massive mob, going "Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough," <sighs> and the Russians went, "All right." Then uh, the Russians, the Romans, Romans. Went. <laughs> the Romans yeah, they, went out, oh, all right, then and just sort of methodically hacked their way through this this whole crowd.
1: Yeah, the, the Romans it turned out were hard enough. Yeah, they. Uh,
0: <laughs> the lesson <laughs> of history is that if you chant that, you should be fucking certain you're not <laughs> you're not up against the Romans.
1: <laughs> Yeah, so John does believe that the Wildlings' cause is pretty much lost. But mm. also, um, he thinks there is a real danger for Castle Black. The plan is to march on Castle Black and take it. Yeah. And he thinks it's it's really weak. Um yeah. It's only held by some stewards. And the actual castle, because it's obviously built up against this wall, there's no defence for an attack from the south. Mm-hmm. They're obviously waiting for attacks from the north. So if you yeah. attack Castle Black from the south, it's not going to stand a chance. It's just a collection of towers. There's not even a wall around it. Mm. So he's very worried, mm. um, in spite of himself. John's getting to know all these rate like the raiders. Yeah. Um, it's quite an interesting bit where he's thinking about how um, he's got to know all these people, and even though he doesn't want to because he's going to betray them, he's yeah. you know he's getting to know them. Yeah. Um, so. He reaches this village. It's obvious because they sit by the bank of this lake and look out to this tower, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's the tower where Bran is, mm. and they're very they're so close to to meeting each other, aren't they? And actually, yeah. Jon says to Egret, "Why don't we swim out to the uh, to the to the tower? Yeah, obviously, obviously for a bit a of, bit of cheeky quiet time. Did you want him uh, to
0: do this or not?
1: Yeah, massively so because I thought he meets. Um, I thought the only way. That John and Egret are leaving this together is something's going to happen, which means they've both, um, you know, some other reason to make them both split oh. off. And I thought if they meet Bran, and he's got you know this tale of what he's trying to do, and I don't know, it might be it might be a third way out because they can't side with the Wildlings because John won't allow it. They can't side with the Nights Watch because Egret won't allow it. But they could side with Bran, couldn't they? Yeah, and yeah, just, that's just very And just decide true, though, to could... protect him and say yeah. this is, you know, say Jojen comes out with this long story as to why it's so important that Bran survives and it's all tied up in this knowledge of the old gods which Egret can get on board with. Mm. I When I when they were thinking about going out, I was thinking that's the way it's going to go, actually. And I thought, oh, great, they're going to split off with Bran. That's and very it comes amazing. so close and then doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: must have driven you crazy. <laughs> I was quite relieved because I thought, Right, right now, Bran meeting John is terrible because it like he can't John can't tell everybody who the kid is. Mm. And um that just puts Bran in greater danger when if he met John without the um the wildlings around, he'd be fine and that would've mm, been a really yeah. great moment. Um so so you care about the good development of the plot and I just care about the character's well being. <laughs> it says a lot <laughs> about our different approaches to this.
1: Well, I suppose it's yeah. It all depends on whether um, how they meet. If if John sees someone in there and shouts for everybody else to someone in here, mm. then, if, then they're then they fucked, aren't they? Yeah. If if John and Bran bump into each other without raising the alarm, then there's a possibility for some kind of development. But mm-hmm. yeah, in the end, it's irrelevant because they don't go out there uh, because they're distracted.
0: You sound genuinely distraught. You're just like, in the end, I'm a bit good,
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in the end, uh, they decide to uh, they get dragged over to, to kill an innocent bloke on a horse instead who's just been wandering around and has had the misfortune to light a fire when wildlings are nearby. So um, he's <laughs> on his knees waiting to die. John can't kill him. He's told to kill him to prove that he's really a wildling now and he won't do it. <laughs> so he does it for him. And she doesn't, doesn't hesitate, does she? She just goes straight over and opens the guy's throat. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and lest you were under in, in, in any danger of assuming that Egret would gone a bit soft because she was having so much sex with John, yeah, no, 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 no. no, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like because Egret does it and not John, that this is the moment where John's been found out because mm. he can't do it. And it's proof that he isn't really on side with them, and he's gonna, you know, they're gonna take retribution. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Summer appears, that Bran's brand's brand's wolf, and starts tearing up. Men, (laughs) and John, and and gives John a chance to escape.
0: Presumably under Bran's control.
1: Yeah, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? So
0: does that mean that Bran knows? Does Bran recognize? Can Bran recognize John when he's being a wolf?
1: Yeah, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? That'd be great.
0: That would be fantastic. Because then you got like a, you know, then they both they both all they need to do is get into their wolves and meet up. Yeah.
1: I suppose uh, John uh, Bran isn't always in control of the wolf so it yeah. could be that this is a point where the wolf isn't being controlled by Bran yeah. but at the same time it seems a strange time for this wolf to suddenly decide to attack yeah um because it's just a perfect moment to Save John and allow him to escape, and that's what he does. Yeah. Um, although he does get an arrow in his leg for his for his trouble as he's riding yeah. away. I yeah. think we're, we're led to believe it might even be Egret who sticks one in his leg. Mm. And there's this horrible bit where he, he escapes, and then he's by this little river, and he's he's trying to pull the arrow out, and he ends up having to push the arrow through his through oh. his leg. And oh god, I just wouldn't be able to do it. I just yeah. Oh yeah, oh. horrendous.
0: Yeah, it is, and. Uh, there are two things that I, I think are really big about John in this chapter. Is he's he's a he's a man. You know what I mean? Now yeah. he's he's like of all the Stark kids, he has even out of Rob, he has the the smallest sense of still being a kid about him. Because he's like, you know, he's got all this tactical knowledge that he just knows the wildlings aren't going to succeed, and he's already thought about the castle and how easy it will be to take the castle. And then he gets shot, and just. It, it, I mean, it hurts him, but in quite a matter-of-fact sort of way, he pushes it through his thigh,
1: and it's like... Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? And oh. in the end, he, he, he manages to do it back on the horse, and he's off to Castle Black, and mm. that's where we leave it. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, uh, what a lot of material, and, yeah. um, and what a setup for the next book.
0: Oh yeah, and that's been that's been a proper flurry of climaxes, hasn't it? Like, I don't think there was a single chapter that we just did that didn't have something pretty big in it. You know, either like a surprise or a twist or a setup. I can't wait! I can't wait for the next bit.
1: Yeah, well, shall we? um, Let's look ahead to the next one then, because what you want to know, I know, I know what you want to know. You know what you want to know. It's where we're reading to next time. (laughs) I always want the answer here. The answer so it's so if you've got the book in two parts, this is where it's going to be difficult. If you've got the, the one big bumper of volume of A Storm of Swords, then continue to read. And you're <laughs> going to have to just go through chapter, you know, what our chapter descriptions are to, as to where to stop. But if, like, as you have Storm of Swords broken into two books, then we're now going to begin next week A Storm of Swords Blood and Gold, part two. So it's sort of Storm of Swords part two. Mm. And we will be reading from. Obviously, this, this, the first chapter, which is a chapter about Daenerys, which begins, Her Dothraki scouts had told her how it was. I'm not, not sure how it was, but that is what they told her. There we go. Uh, we're reading as far as page 78 in the mm. two-part book, which is a chapter about Arya, which begins when they reach the top of the ridge. Um, so when you get to that chapter, stop reading, and we will do that next week. Rather interestingly, we're still um, not at the end of. We're still about two chapters away from, or two parts away from being at the end of Game of Thrones series three. So we're we're a couple of weeks behind the actual TV series. But you know that's no bad thing because it's not. Mm. We won't have as much confusion between what we've seen on screen and what we're reading in the book as well. So you know, (laughs) if if you're watching the TV series, you can quite happily watch it. And then rewind a bit with us and see, you know, how the book is stacking up to it.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it now because, um, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, well, the next cha- the next part for next week is going to be called Misa or Misa. Misa, I think it's called, actually. Um, and if you've got any, actually, any thoughts on the Storm of Swords Part 1, of course, as ever... You can, you're more than welcome to send them in to us. The email address to contact us is sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil. And we're also on Facebook as well. Dave. Matt. Is there anything else you want to say about Storm of Swords Part 1?
0: It hasn't hung around, has it? It's galloped no, through it? itself, and it's got <laughs> sure. enough plot in it for three or four novels, but I'm quite glad he's kept up the pace, and I'm mm. really looking forward to seeing what happens next.
1: Yeah. Which what which, which plot are you most invested in, at the moment?
0: <sighs> oh, good question. Um... Actually, do you know, I think it's John.
2: Mm, oh, I'm
0: quite interested in that, because, I mean, so the the Catelyn stuff is very... Well, well, I mean, I don't want to try and guess... But he's been on, on, on such a downward slope for Rob and for Catelyn and for everybody. You know, we've had now a whole one and a half novels of the Starks are not going to get back to where you want them to be. So I'm kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm feeling more a sense of kind of of res- resignation there.
1: You yeah, know? I keep thinking with, with Rob, surely... <clears throat> at some point we've got to hit the bottom and then start coming up again yeah and every every time one of the, you get one of these setbacks you think well maybe that's the bottom and maybe the next chapter will see some kind of improvement in fortune um and it's just yet to happen isn't it and hopefully the next part of the book that that will that'll be when it does but yeah on the on the other hand is it just is it just sort of a irreversible decline now, is it just going to keep going. We just don't... You well, see, it is fascinating, actually.
0: It is. It's fascinating. And you, the one thing you can't make any money at is trying to guess what George Martin's going to do with the plot. So I'm still... I'm invested in that, but I don't have the same sense of tension because I'm, I'm basically assuming that, you know, it's just going to be a kind of slow decline and fall. And you could even see him just becoming not even dramatic, just sort of like kind of, oh, yeah, that kid who was the king in the north as everybody mm. sort of drifted away from him.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah you know. he just ends up with a household guard just knocking about almost He's like Berwick Dundarium I Northrop am the king
0: do. in the north which bit <laughs> in the north this bit here <laughs> yeah. from here to those and trees I'm the king
1: of the, in, in north north northwest. north <laughs> <laughs> Norfolk, and the north king north north Norfolk. north <laughs> north yeah <laughs> 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 and uh, until next time until next uh, time. Happy mate. reading and uh, enjoy the uh, obviously enjoy the enjoy the series as well because it's oh, back yes. on, there, not it? Yeah, the, uh, yeah 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 Game of Thrones series. All right, take it easy. See you next time. Later.